Welcome to Aperia, the podcast, where we discuss the great questions of classical Christian education. We're your hosts. I'm Tim Dernley. And I'm Danielle Dillenschneider. Join us as we navigate our way through the labyrinth of questions. Well, welcome to Aperia, the podcast. This next series is going to be a little bit different. We're not going to start off every episode with a major question. Uh, Really, we're going to have every episode be about a specific selection from the classical Christian tradition concerning education. We're getting our selections from the anthology, The Great Tradition. It's edited by Richard M. Gamble. And I encountered this text the first time when I was in the MAT, the master's at Eastern, uh, their honors college, where I read through the great tradition. We had different selections, and I just love it because it's a chronological collection of all the different writings on education and what it means to be an educated human being and uh, just different perspectives of education from the time of Plato to almost now which I think is really cool, and it can maybe inform and shape the way that we understand education today as classical Christian educators. So for our first podcast episode on the great tradition, as we dive into our sort of book club reading this work, we had to go with Plato. I mean, it all goes back to Plato. We won't be able to read every single entry from this anthology, but obviously you've got to go to Plato because it all goes back to him. And so from this selection from Plato's writings, we chose to read the selections from the Republic that Richard M. Gamble has collected. And I appreciated it because I've actually recently been teaching the Republic to seniors. And so it's kind of fun to to see it in a little bit of a different light and going to be fun to talk about it with you. Tim, what sticks out to you in what we've read from Plato's Republic? <laughs> Well, I, I I had not read through it like you had uh, in your master's work. I inherited this book 10 years ago at an office Christmas party. So we had a, a white elephant gift, and uh, and then I saw this book, and I was really, really uh, envious to get it, and I ended up with it. And then I didn't open it up until last week when we <laughs> talked about going through this, and you said, Tim, we're going we're gonna to go with the great tradition. So uh I'm excited about it. And the thing that first stuck out to me, Danielle, on uh, on Plato's Republic in Book 5 was the discussion on opinion versus knowledge and drilling down on that. And it just it caused me to think a lot about our students and when we're teaching them and what we allow, what's inbounds and out of bounds for discussion when, when we're, uh, we're when we're drilling down on truth in different subjects. So I thought I, I was just amused by that that part. You know, you know which part I'm talking about. Yes, yeah, that's in book five. I, the thing I like about the way Plato writes, which actually might be frustrating for people to read the first time, but when you read and reread it, you start to see his line of thought. And so I love this selection because you get this idea in book five where he starts to talk about opinion and knowledge, and he's not even gotten into the divided line, and he's not yet even gotten into the allegory of the cave. But when he gets into it later in books books six and seven, then what he's saying here about opinion and knowledge starts to make a lot more sense. But the first time you read it, you're like opining and what? What is that? What? That's kind of a weird way to talk about it. Like on page eight, he's talking about opinion and knowledge. Opinion is not as good as knowledge, right? Uh, because to know something 
is to to see it to understand it fully whereas to have an opinion about something um it's it's not really as solid but it's better than complete ignorance uh but i i think that one part that sticks out to me is on page eight he says um i would ask the gentleman who is of the opinion that there is no absolute or unchangeable idea of beauty and whose opinion the beautiful is the manifold. He, I say, you're a lover of beautiful sights who cannot bear to be told that the beautiful is one and the just is one or that anything else is one. To him, I would appeal saying, will you be so very kind, sir, as to tell us whether of all these beautiful things there is one which will not be found ugly or the just which will not be found unjust or of the holy which will not be found unholy. And his friend replies, the beautiful will in some point of view be found ugly and the same is true of the rest and socrates is kind of concerned about the fact that they might not always be in agreement on what is true or what is just or what is beautiful and so he kind of thinks okay if somebody only can opine about what's beautiful or about what's just or about what's true means they can't really define it they don't really know it so they're always kind of hitting around it and they're never really quite getting it right yeah, yeah, and and there's definitely a progression he argues for between ignorance to opinion to knowledge and then on to wisdom. And so that that whole idea of can you can you possess an opinion or possess a knowledge and which is more which is more uh concrete and um obviously knowledge is the higher order. Um but go go ahead. Yeah, I feel all I like all of this these words, opinion versus knowledge, all of that sort of is hard to understand in in abstract. But when you put an image to it, like the allegory of the cave, it mm-hmm. starts to make so much more sense. So uh, have you ever read the allegory of the cave before? Yeah. And a uh, l- long time ago, philosophy 101 at Purdue University, I had to study Plato. And the, the obviously the allegory of the cave was uh, quite fascinating and something we spent time on. I enjoyed I enjoyed the philosophy classes I took, and then touched on it a little bit in breezing through Republic a couple times, but but hadn't really dug down on the earlier parts of the Republic uh, until until recently. So, yeah, I, I think the allegory is so fascinating. Uh, the the way he tells it. So essentially, the allegory of the cave, uh, it, it's a fascinating story. An allegory w- is a story where everything in the story is symbolic of something else, right? So you might think of like Christian uh, or Pilgrim's Progress with Christian on his road going to the celestial city, right? Uh, it's just an allegory or an image all about the Christian life. But the allegory of the cave is really fascinating uh, it seems to be a lot about education in terms of what this selection is is calling out. So uh, to think about the allegory of the cave, to retell it, uh, in this allegory of the cave, you have a bunch of prisoners at the bottom of a pit in this cave, and they're chained to a wall and they can only look forward. And behind them, there is this fire burning and they're people and things that that walk in front of this fire and cast the shadow. And so the prisoners can't see any of that, though. All they can see is the wall. And all they can see, actually, on the wall is shadows. And they spend their whole lives debating, calling uh, to each other, trying to figure out what the names of those shadows would be. And, and that is basically what opinion is, as Plato later explains it. It's just trying to figure out, okay, what is that thing? And 
and it's just a shadow on a wall. It's all they can look at. Yeah, and there's not there's not a lot of knowledge behind looking at a shadow. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just a, a a large, blurry, undefined image, and that's a lot of what we're trying to do when we're using opinion, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they might see it's sort of like seeing an instance of beauty or justice, and say, "Oh, well, that's beauty and that's justice," but it really depends. And uh, well, most people would say it's just in the eye of the whole of the beholder. Maybe it's beautiful to you or if it's true to you and but it's not to me, then it's kind of up to you. And it's all just a matter of opinion. And that is kind of a dangerous realm to live in, because really, ultimately, at the end, uh, they don't really know anything. Right. They don't know anything beyond just these shadows, which are meaningless and void. <laughs> so sure. But when someone gets out, yeah, moves to the upper story uh, and can see things rightly, uh, it, it becomes much more defined as knowledge. And then that person is oftentimes then um, viewed as, uh, I don't know, an outsider, not not uh, not appreciated. But I thought it was interesting though in that in in that uh plato said that person should should always return return down um mm-hmm. to the uh to the cave yeah i even i think it's fascinating to think about um this idea that when the prisoner is freed to get go out of the cave the first thing he has to do is look at the fire and and look at the objects and it says that he gets so confused at first that he almost rejects what he sees and thinks, no, 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 the, the shadows were real. And maybe this is, this is not real. No, no, no. It's just this the shadows. Is hallucination. This is something, yeah, not real. Yeah. Just because anytime you go from darkness to looking directly at light, your eyes kind of hurt. And, and then I think this one's kind of hilarious to me uh, in the allegory of the cave. It says that they have to drag this this prisoner up it says that he is reluctantly dragged up a steep and rugged ascent and held fast until he is forced in the into the presence of the sun himself is he not likely to be pained and irritated and i just think that's that's so true <laughs> that's so true of all education is that it's a little bit of somebody dragging you along <laughs> and uh it's painful and, 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 and it's and irritating the, and- and that goes back to the, one of the early parts of book five when he talks about uh, food and refusal of good food. And um, again, just like refusal of going out of the the chained up uh, ignorance of seeing the shadows, uh, refusing good food, refusing good education, and um, not realizing how beautiful a steak is versus, you know, some some processed piece of whatever candy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it's it's this whole process for the prisoner of of learning to see and learning to see outside of the cave because if you've spent your life in darkness and you're trying to see uh the world around you and and go through the process of even being able to look up into the sky and see the sun, you've got to start slowly. And so um this is all just an interesting image for the process by which somebody comes to know the truth. Right. And no, he says later on that the sun in the this uh, upper world outside of the cave, that that is symbolic of the cause of all things. It is the good capital G, um, the the source of everything. Yeah. And and obviously we can't read this without our uh, Christian 
uh, goggles on, right? Um, for mm-hmm. me, I'm just I'm seeing that, and I'm I'm reminded of people being awakened to life in Christ later in life, and and kind of being thrown off, and then be having to stare into the sun of God and the truth uh, of God versus the the sun here in the allegory. And um, yeah, it's uh, there's there's a lot going on with Plato, right? Yeah, yeah, and and within the context of the work, he's been talking about how a just city could come into being if there was a truly uh, just philosopher, a wise man, a lover of wisdom who was ruling. Uh, similarly, a just soul in his image uh, correlation there, a just soul could exist if the calculating part loved wisdom and the the spirited part supported the calculating part of the soul in the love of preserving um, through courage, right? The, the right perceptions of what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. And so I think that's kind of fascinating because with this image of the allegory of the cave, you have the prisoner who's been drugged into the sunlight. And so he's like the philosopher who comes to see the truth. He knows he he doesn't just have opinion. He has knowledge. He has experience of what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. He's seen it. He's interacted with it. And he's forced to go back down, as you said earlier, right? He yeah. has to go yeah. back down into the cave. And instead of just like the philosopher who would really like to spend all of his time just philosophizing, right? To to be thinking about contemplating the true, the good, the beautiful, he has to go do things with his philosophy um, and help rule the just city. And 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 that's that's great because I do think a lot of times uh, folks can miss. So first, thanks for pulling us back out and reminding us about justice and the theme and the of of justice throughout the republic. But then a lot of times folks will miss what Plato is saying and think, oh. The philosopher kings are just those that sit around and think all the time, but they go down, they go back, and they work, and they in- illuminate, and they lead, even when it's difficult, mm-hmm. and even even when uh, even when the students sitting around the table in sixth period don't appreciate it and aren't awakened and want to rely on their opinion because they haven't done their reading or they haven't. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's good. It's yeah. Good. And it's fascinating how, you know, we kind of even today hear this idea of like, Oh, a philosopher is going to rule. Like that's ridiculous, you know? Um, because you think about philosophers, like not doing anything and not being good for anything. Uh, and, and Plato even is, is somebody says that to him, right? Like why would philosophers be good for this? I mean, don't they have a bad reputation? Aren't they really considered useless oftentimes? <laughs> and he agrees with them. He's like, yeah, absolutely, actually. Uh, but in fact, in in a way, uh, the uselessness is just a bad perception on the the part of the masses, right? I mean, when this when this guy who's been freed from the cave goes back down into the cave, what do the prisoners think about him? <laughs> yeah, they think he's crazy. They think he's uh, has seen a a a. a a vision or hallucination and say they don't, they don't believe him. Mm -hmm. They don't trust him. They don't want to follow him. 
And everything that they're saying about the shadows, he's so confused. He can't even really see what they're talking about because his eyes have not adjusted yet. And even once he sees it, he's like, well, that's not what beauty is. Like, that's that's not justice. I've seen true beauty. I've seen true justice. Yeah. You all need to wake up and 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 come alive to that. Yeah. And that's. And and maybe maybe the philosophers of the day and our day do think sit around and think too much instead of getting in the trenches and back down into the cave to help um, bring people to life. It's easier to it's easier to stay in the awakened state and only surround yourself with people who are of that same at the same point in life as you are at the same progression at the same point of sanctification to just stay there because it's hard work it's hard work to go back down into the cave and bring people along and that's and that's education isn't it and that's that's yeah. education yeah and i think it's funny too because he's also thinking so politically right he's thinking most most of the things that people are arguing about in the cave about the shadows it's to win their own prizes and honors and the philosophers don't care about those prizes and honors they see how worthless they are and that actually makes them better off as rulers because they aren't concerned with their own selfish gain and their own selfish ambition they actually know what's true and what's good and that's so that's a lot of what, what are the other things in books the book 5 and 6 selections are talking about is that um, the one who loves truth really loves and focuses on his love of truth and is sure to be temperate. Um, he's not going to be illiberal, but will be generous, right? Um, he's not going to have this meanness of soul. He's going to have this sort of uh, magnificence of soul, this magnanimity, yeah. right? Um, I think that's really fascinating because I, I think we kind of don't really consider that when we're educating, we're educating for greatness of soul to help them see what is true and understand that and love that as opposed to loving the really minor and consequential things of this world, right? I mean, that would be the hope is that once you see and know and love what's really true, what's really good, the cause of all things, once you see that, then all of the other things seem to pass away, right? That's very Christian as well. And that yeah, mentality. I, yeah, I do. I it, I do appreciate the the, um, the magnanimity, the greatness of soul. Um, I don't know if those words were specifically in this selection, but that's definitely what he's getting at when he's talking about virtue and um, love of knowledge and truth. And then he goes into, I believe it's on the bottom of page eleven, as we were in the selections that we were reading. Um, person needs uh, a good memory, quick to learn, need to be noble gracious, a friend of truth, justice, courage, temperance. Yeah. Just that whole idea of educating toward virtue and uh, forming in that way is, uh, it's tough a a lot. We're in the cave ourselves, right. Of uh, the education that we've been surrounded with and brought up with and, and look at and think about when we need good sports teams in our schools and good, um, I don't know what what whatever <laughs> good nice looking grade cards. Um, we forget about those are shadows that we're all trapped in and seeing and have trouble being reminded of of what education is truly for. Yeah.
So when I think back on these excerpts, I have a few things that I, I feel like this is telling me about education. Like when I read it, I just think, okay, wow, that, that smacks me in the face. And so one is that I kind of mentioned it earlier, but that education will be a struggle, that it will be painful at times. Um, and it's something that others have to initiate for you. They have to literally drag you out of the cave. It also makes me think a little bit about contemplation. Um, and obviously that goes back to Dante to when you get into Purgatorio and Paradiso, contemplation is this idea of like God's grace, this divine grace that's visited to you and he gives you insight and he shows you himself. And that's something that you can't really initiate sometimes other than to just be still and be reliant and wait, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah, being drugged out of the cave and being forced to stare at the sun, being forced to stare at the beauty, right? That that being forced to contemplate, but yeah, just that waiting and contemplation. It's mm -hmm. um, it's difficult. It's difficult, and and the idea that education is hard is um, is a foreign concept in modern America. I mean we have it pretty easy in America and it's, we don't, we don't want things to be hard in any way. Right. Uh, if, if my water for my shower isn't hot in 30 seconds, that's hard. Right. I mean, there's, and so to wait for, to wait for longer than that, to, for education or for learning, for contemplation to develop is, uh, is difficult, let alone the actual, um, seeking out and gaining of knowledge. And then beyond that gaining of, of wisdom, um, mm -hmm. and waiting for the Holy Spirit to move and awaken us. And, and, um, it's, there's, there's a lot, there's a, there's so much going on and we're going to probably talk about this later, but our school's even set up for true education. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that as we look back on the great tradition and think about how great minds considered what it meant to be educated, are schools really promoting that and encouraging that? Uh, I mean, that's a great question. I think one thing, though, additionally, that this really brings back to, to me about education is that it's kind of twofold. But one, that we have, we have the capacity to learn. It already exists in the soul, right? Like that's something innate about the divine image in us. Yeah, it's not yeah, like... We're blank what page, slates. What page was that on? Sorry. Uh, page 14. Okay, go ahead. So instead of having the mentality of, okay, all these students are blank slates and we have to just put everything onto the slate for them or they're empty vessels that we pour all of our knowledge into, it is much different in a way, right? Like they, as, as Plato talks about it, it's this capacity to learn is already exists in the soul, right? It's not... It, Mm -hmm. And he's saying it's wrong to think that it's our our job to put knowledge into the soul, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Go ahead. No, it's just funny because he has a different view of the soul as if the soul existed before it was put into a body and it had existence with the forms. And so like learning is just a process about like getting rid of forgetfulness in a sense and remembering. Um, and, and that's kind of fascinating to consider. But uh, he, it, it's interesting in, in some sense that there are certain aspects of it, right? Like God has put eternity into the heart of man or like the image of God and, and the way that we're knit together in our souls. I think from the Christian perspective, 
would say that we have this divine gift of being able to learn. Um, and, and Plato would see it differently, but agree, right. <laughs> that he was, that we he have was this capacity. so very close on so many things, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, so because because we have this, the whole soul must be involved in education. And for him, so the platonic soul, we maybe talked about this before, but for him, the platonic soul, there's this sort of idea of the tripartite soul. It, it's the, the Greek word for soul is psyche or suke. Um, so if you think about like psychology, we might think about the ways in which the soul is not just um, maybe your spirit, which is sometimes we kind of struggle to understand what the soul is. As he sees it, there's a, both a rational and an irrational part. And even in the irrational, you have almost two distinct ideas. So you have the the appetites or the, the basic needs and desires, you know, sleeping and drinking and all those other things But that basically animals have too, right? The basic appetites. But then as humans, we have the spirited we have our sort of, it's like our emotions, but it's more of the noble emotions. It's not like um, just like every single range of emotion, probably to Plato. He'd say that they were definitely better emotions, the spirited part. And then there's the calculating part. I love that Lewis really defines these as the head, the chest and the stomach that helps more. But um, yeah, I think that the idea is that the parts all have to move. Like he talks about education being a process of turning around. So just like in the cave, right? It's not just looking at the the wall of shadows, but it's learning to turn. And the whole body has to turn for the eyes to be able to turn. And so similarly, it means your appetites, your emotions have to turn as well. And almost first before your mind can turn and can see. Yeah, and and um, going back to his uh, allegory, if we're chained so our heads cannot turn and cannot see, it's 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 difficult. It's difficult. I once uh, had a an evening job, just one evening, one night, twenty years ago, and I had to move veal onto um, a, 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 a young calves that had been chained up their whole life onto a semi truck, and they couldn't move. They'd never walked before. They'd never, they'd been chained up their whole life so that they would be tender. Sorry for everyone who loves veal. Um, <laughs> it was really gross and really bad and uh, a, a, an awful experience. But in that, you know, that turning around when we've been chained up in the allegory, back to the allegory of the cave, when we've been chained up and not able to turn our heads and that that idea of turning around, we don't have the muscle, we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the, even the orientation, you know, we get dizzy and discombobulated and, and thrown off. And the idea, I think it was at the top of 15 in our selection that uh, it's, it's habit, a habit mm -hmm. and exercise that begins to develop in those ways. Um, and, and anyone who has not read this, it will be tough to read for the first time because mm -hmm. it's a it's a habit. It's exercise. It's difficult, but it's worth doing and taking time and going through um, little by little with the with the entire text, uh, not just some selections as as we've read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's it's fascinating because in this we we've talked about in previous series about education as formation, but this is this is kind of the the text that we're drawn back to the original kind of thinker that really influenced C.S. Lewis's abolition of man to understand that it's not that we're just educating the mind, right? So um, later, uh, different parts in the Republic, 
only later in an an adult's life in Plato's Republic would they really start to think more about dialectic. Throughout their entire youth, pretty much until the age of 18, they're being raised with music and gymnastic, right? So gymnastic is obviously the the physical aspect of education. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, Mm -hmm. Yep. And then music is not merely just songs. It's also stories, right? So the stories that the student, that the, the kids learn, it's passing on their culture. And, and he's very intentional about the kinds of stories that, um, learn, that they learn, that they learn things that are true and that are good about the gods. He doesn't want stories about the gods being, you know, um, these evil kind of creatures in, in any way he wants to, them to see that like there's goodness and, and truth and beauty in the world. And he wants them to be familiar with that from education through stories and through music. He sees the influence that that song and tempo and rhythm and harmony all has on the soul. And through that, they learn to have this sense of, of moderation growing up. And, mm. uh, a few of them, especially the, the guardians in his just city, which is all just an image for the soul, but they would learn courage through, uh, through these stories too, that they are learning to preserve what's true, what's good, what's beautiful. That's what he says. Courage is, is really preserving through difficulty, um, what is already and known to be good. And so, so doing that, uh, through, through as well, through taming the spirit through, um, gymnastic, right. Gymnastic. So only through there then can they be ready and be primed to later in their life, like from the time that they're 30 to 55, as he says, for the guardians in his city, he would say, then they're ready to really study, uh, arithmetic and, and geometry and geometry will take them into contemplating. It's sort of like the part of the, the cave when they start to look at the ground and the reflections and stuff like that. They're starting to see this idea of equality or beauty or harmony in ways. And then that will direct them upward into the true forms of, of truth, beauty, goodness. And so I think it's just kind of a fascinating mentality of, of what education is for and about. It's a lifelong thing. It's a lifelong thing. And to understand that is uh, in- encouraging to both student and teacher so that we don't get frustrated in this modern concept of thinking we need to cram it all in right at the end. So th- this idea that um, they must continue to ascend until they arrive at the good. So that continual ascent, continue rising up. And and I've been taking heart in that, um, uh, in, in the idea that I was... Uh, raised more in the formation of of my body and story the gymnastic the the sport aspect uh earlier on and and um i'm studying more deeply the philosophy now obviously i wish i would have received a classical education k through 12 and um but uh but i'm trying to take heart in the idea that plato says it's okay you can you can you can really embrace it now and and as uh, as my oldest son is reading through the Republic right now and discussing it, he and I have talked a little bit about that. And um, and I'm he he's a bright young man, but I'm anxious to see what he takes away from it twenty years from now. He's getting a lot out of it now, but twenty years from now he'll have life behind it and be able to embrace all of his learning at an even deeper level and and really move and arrive toward the the good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think as I as I think back on a lot of Plato 
and his ideas about the forms and that sort of thing. The thing that I think always rubs me the wrong way is the way he treats the poets. Obviously, he wants to kick them out of his city. And he he also just everything's about, you know, just as the the famous image from the school of Athens, he's always just like pointing up and he is always about the forms and the greater and the ideal and that sort of thing. And he's not really thinking about the particulars and the reality and and he thinks they're that they're distracting and they're bad. And I think that so butts up against Christianity in ways because God works through particulars. He works through messed up people. He oh, brought yeah. a Messiah through through like very specific line of people for a reason and he still teaches us through some particular people, symbols some messed yeah. up people in that line right yeah, yeah absolutely yep. and he still teaches us through particular symbols right through mm. um mm. through mm. the 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 lord's supper right and and that sort of thing through baptism things like that these symbols of what what we do we participate in a greater mystery so i think I, I find myself getting more frustrated with Plato when I read it sometimes thinking like, this is so abstract. We don't know how to get access it. And he really is saying when, as you said earlier, like, oh, only people who have good memory and who it comes naturally to and all these people, they can become philosophers and everybody else, pat, pat, sit down, serve a greater good. And that's good. And there's some parts where we can totally understand and jive with it. Cause you know, Paul talks about the body of Christ in first Corinthians, but I think that there is part of it that says, no, I think every person has dignity and worth regardless of their mental capacity, right? Everybody gets to learn this. And and really, like, the truth, goodness, beauty can be known in the person of Jesus, right? Like, it's not just this abstract form. It's it's in Christ, right? And I think that's, that Louis Marcus has said this. Truth is not um, these words. Truth is a person, and we mm. can know him. Yeah, yeah. and and And— that's where Plato again can't quite see it. He he sees himself and other philosophers who are just brilliant. And yeah, it'll lead you toward pat pat on the head, sit down. We got it from here. Don't distract us with uh with your particulars. And mm-hmm. um but God is orchest is um orchestrating a symphony and all these different particulars and all these different um ways of people being created particular situations that people are going through it's a beautiful beautiful symphony that none of us on earth can appreciate none of us can fully understand even 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 folks in the realm of plato or danielle dolenschneider like the brilliant most brilliant of minds (laughs) Um, but it's but it's uh it's uh it's a beautiful thing to realize that um it's beyond beyond what plato had for us um he gets so close but it's so beyond and i love that you are talking about uh christ and and um and seeing seeing fully uh through through christ and what he's done yeah i i think though there are some things that plato does that i i do have to say some part of it is cool to to get back to like education was for the good of others it's not just for yourself and for your own betterment <laughs> say that again cuz that is not anywhere close to modern america or the modern world the good of what the good of others <laughs> yeah yeah the good of the whole i mean he's thinking about uh in his polis it, obviously it's still an image for the soul but also there's this idea of 
every craft, every um, every job in the city is really important. Uh, you need it, right? Just like the m- members of a body, right? Um, you need the crafts and you need uh, to, to support each other and you need that. And that's a good and valid way of life. And and that's uh, when I read that part, I, I, I kind of reeled against it initially because of my modern setting and my uh, independence as an American and lack of full embrace of uh, of living as a Christian and that Christian community and for the good of everyone and the good of others. And so the education is for the good of others is just um, is just a, an important thing to be reminded of and will help when we truly seek to um, dive into this educational renaissance that's that's going on in the, in in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's also something strange of note to to say that Plato says that both guys and girls can be educated. <laughs> you know that they could do the same job. Uh, which I think was really rare in the ancient world that they could be educated and and do the same thing and um, that even though the the woman was was weaker physically um, than than the man that sh- that she could also learn and she could also be a defender of the city and and that sort of thing I was like oh that's kind of interesting and every time I read it I just kind of I forget like that's kind of not normal <laughs> for the ancient world <laughs> so yeah yep. Yep, it's uh, it's good stuff. Yeah, it uh, it helps us not just totally react. It's been I, I play around with the idea of of uh, all male schools, all female schools, and then when you read Plato and and see that, I think it's much healthier to have um, a full classroom and having a, a variety of perspectives that both men and women bring to to the learning process and and the uh, the the education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just, it's interesting to go back and read in the great tradition and think through um, some of, some of this stuff from Plato and how he just conceptualized education, even in an ideal sense, right? And he was always doing things in a very idealistic sense, uh, which maybe I think will be interesting for us to consider then as we work into some of the other historical authors, how they kind of saw it more practically working out uh, or in in realistic circumstances. We'll read from different educators in the great tradition who had experience educating young people and what their experience was like, because I think that's kind of fun to see that uh, not, there's not much new under the sun sometimes, uh, even, even with a very different culture and very different setting. So uh, I want to share three things before we wrap things up. And mm-hmm. then I want to ask you a question. Okay. So um, these are these are um, not necessarily um, in any particular order. There's things that that I wanted to throw out there before we wrap up. Nancy Piercy kept coming to mind during this in her idea of the upper story and lower story, and um, her books uh, Total Truth, but more specifically, um, oh, it's it's the it's the one on uh, the art. Um, Saving Leonardo. Yeah, or? saving saving Leonardo, uh, and then uh, and then the uh, the the body, love thy body, and mm. uh, just she's she's really brilliant. Obviously, been influenced here a little bit by by Plato, and then and then the idea that in education, a lot of times we're setting the table for the Holy Spirit to work. That idea of contemplation and waiting for, um, waiting for the Holy Spirit to move is 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 important, and then. Um, 
And then I had one other really brilliant thing that I forgot. So, so is there, is there anything uh, on your mind, Danielle, that just, even if it's random things like I just went through that kind of came to mind, Oh, the other one on mine, when, when we read that education is for the good of others, my mind went to the book of acts and how the early church was just so intentional about living, living as a, as a community uh, for each other. Um, so, and if we get that mindset as we learn and grow together through education, it can be a beautiful thing. So were there any, any things that popped out that we didn't cover that you wanted to throw out there? Well, I guess I would say, um, if you are ever interested in reading along with us or diving more into the great tradition, uh, and, and, and diving into particular works, things like Plato, reading Plato's Republic, if you ever want to do that, please reach out, uh, we would love to to have conversations with you about those things. And also, I would really recommend uh, reading reading the whole work, reading uh, or listening to Louis Marcos from uh, Plato to Christ. I think that's been a really helpful resource as I've dug back into it. Uh, Louis Marcos is always so great on these things. Um, and I would even challenge you to consider the the really contemporary application of of these ideas and the abolition of man, read the whole three chapters, uh, men without chess, the Tao and the abolition of man, all three, because they are based on three lectures that Lewis gave. And so much of these ideas are in the background and it plays out, you know, the, the, um, the importance of having true knowledge of, of the absolutes of the objective truth versus subjective opinion uh, sort of might change flavor of the month. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth kind of thing. Uh, yeah, he does a really <laughs> great job with kind of explaining the dangers of that. And I think it's really fascinating because uh, it's it doesn't seem like it's necessarily an old uh uh, or an, sorry, a new uh, problem. It's something as old as Plato, where people were taking their opinion, and whoever was the strongest would make their opinion, whatever it was, their truth, imply it down on other people. And that's just not how uh, the world is meant to work. There is an order. There is truth. There is goodness. There is beauty. And when we see that, we realize that, and we live in accordance to it. There's peace, and there's there's justice, and there's harmony. Now, obviously, we need the person and work of Christ to experience that. But it's fascinating that Lewis, if you're if if you're ever looking to figure out how do you even consider this from a philosophical view, it's it's doesn't really talk very much about theology at all. It's a fascinating work. I've just been digging back into it, and uh, there there's also uh, another helpful resource I've been uh, reading in about uh, the the abolition of man. It's called After Humanity. It's by Michael Ward. Uh, he also wrote Planet Nardia, and I, I think that's been really helpful. But it's it's a helpful guide to the abolition of man because it's also really challenging. It's a challenging work too, uh, but it's definitely well worth a read. Yeah, I love it. So if if uh, if if folks do pick up the Great Tradition, it's about seven hundred pages. Uh, it's a the price tag on it is is uh, is higher than a lot of books. Well worth it. Well worth it. Great introduction. It'll be hard reading some of uh, Lewis and Abolition of Man will be hard, um, but worthwhile. And as uh, Danielle mentioned earlier, and and Plato mentioned, education is difficult, um, mm-hmm. but it's it's worth it. And um, this is this has been wonderful, Danielle. It's uh, it every time we have these discussions, it awakens my appetite to dive in deeper and go in farther to a lot of 
a lot of these readings. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Glad to be a part of it. <laughs>